You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Yeah, oh, I am a scientist. Yeah, oh, I am a scientist. Yeah, oh, I am a scientist. We gotta live on science alone. Welcome to Unbiased Science, where we bring scientific method to the madness. We're your hosts, Dr. Jessica Steyer. And Dr. Andrea Love. And this week, we're doing something a little different. So the first part of the episode, Andrea and I are going to kind of set the stage and air some of our grievances <laughs> with, the, with the fact that policies are often set and passed that impact our health and sort of relate to science. However, scientists are not consulted and a lot of the policymaking is actually based on misinformation and pseudoscience. And we have a lot to say on this topic. And then for the second part of the episode, we are going to share a fireside chat that we recorded previously with the amazing Sharon McMahon, who everyone knows. Um, she's Sharon Says So on social media. She earned a reputation as America's government teacher. And we had a really fantastic conversation with her about government and policymaking. Um, I, I think you'll, you'll really enjoy that conversation. So let's just take a step back for a second Andrea, I think I sort of just gave a little, a high level introduction to some of our frustrations, but we have several examples and we've done posts on these things, of course, but it, it's, it's worth <laughs> sort of pulling it together to speak to this, um, you know, overarching issue, which is science, uh, at least science adjacent policies, not being informed, uh, or, you know, uh, not, not being passed in consultation with actual scientists. So I know there are a few examples we want to raise. Where do you want to start? First, maybe we can start with some of the policies based on chemophobia, perhaps. And I think, you know, it's important. It's always worth reiterating for people that different governments around the world legislate and have policies in place that are based on different uh, methods and different regulations. And very often, um, you know, the United States government is conflated or compared against other governments that operate very differently. I think it's also really important for people to understand that only 28% of American adults are considered civically, scientifically literate, which means that they're actually able to understand scientific information and use that to make informed decisions. And in contrast, the proportion of American adults who think that they have civic science literacy is much higher than that. So what ends up happening is that people are being misled by false information and they are using that to make decisions. And I think it's really important for us to remember that um, people in political positions are members of the general population, right? They are not necessarily scientific experts. There are some science and medical professionals who have moved into politics, but by and large, um, you know, if 28% if of the adult population is scientifically literate, that, that 
sampling is going to be relatively similar for, for those that are making policies. And that's why it's really important that they, they truly do consult the experts and not people or organizations that kind of support their personal opinions or, or cognitive biases. And lest we forget, these politicians are also looking to be reelected. They're looking for votes. And so they're responding to things that they think the, pu- the public wants to see, right? Correct. So another player that we have to address here is the, the, the role of media, right? And, and news outlets. And so when there are headlines splashed across all of our screens and, and papers raising concerns about a particular ingredient, I think a good starting point might be titanium dioxide. Yeah. Um, you know, the politicians are like, oh, look, the public is scared about this. Let me pass a policy that, you know, will will be a popular one. Yeah. So so you know to to that end and and you know I think um this is something that you know doesn't really see political ideology because we see these trends on both sides of the political aisle. But very recently in March March of this year, March 2023, a Democratic uh, California Assemblyman introduced a bill um, which is now called California Assembly Bill 418, also known as the California Food Safety Act, that is um, seeking to ban several substances that are used in U.S. food supply. That included titanium dioxide. It also included brominated vegetable oil, potassium bromate, propyl paraben, and red dye number three. Now, as of early September, titanium dioxide was actually removed from that list, but the the bill is still seeking to ban the other four substances. And of course, if you see the media outlets talking about this, it's toxic chemicals, chemicals this, chemicals that. And you know what? Everything is chemicals. Um, Titanium dioxide, and actually it was removed from the list because the FDA um, responded to this because titanium dioxide is a naturally occurring mineral. It is demonstrably safe in the consumer products that it is used in. And that's everything from um, food products, things like Skittles. Skittles got a lot of undue attention, but also things like um, frostings, other cosmetic products, um, tampons and menstrual health hygiene products, as well as um, toothpaste and other medications. So the data overwhelmingly demonstrate that titanium dioxide at the levels that we are exposed to either in nature or in these consumer products are safe. These other substances that are also um, being under attack with this bill are also demonstrably safe. And the FDA has reaffirmed that time and time again. Now, there's a lot of misinformation that circulates, and a lot of the articles that you'll find um, use the claim that red dye number three is super harmful and, and Europe has banned it. First of all, that's false. Absolutely false. Red dye number three is called something different in European Union. It is called um, E127, and it's the exact same thing. It is also used in Japan, and it has a different name there. So the fact that people are claiming that it's illegal and banned in these countries is just nonsense. On top of that, all of the expert regulatory agencies that study the safety of chemicals, particularly safety of chemicals in food, so food additives, color manufacturers, and so on, have all reaffirmed and asserted that all of these substances that are under attack by this bill are perfectly safe for consumption. That includes 
the FDA in the U.S., the European Food Safety Authority in Europe, and the Joint FAO-WHO Expert Committee on Food Additives, the JECFA, which is a joint working group by numerous countries, supported by numerous countries globally. There are no credible concerns associated with red dye number three, aka E127, um, and it's completely safe for use in food. So, you know, the, the problem is, is that this bill has now passed in the state legislature and it's going to the governor's desk for sign-off. And if it gets signed off on, you're going to have real implications for access to food and certain food products in the state of California, at least in this instance, that are not based on anything scientific and instead is being based on fear-mongering and public pressure that's exacerbated by social media and influencers who don't actually understand how to interpret evidence. I, I just, I've lost track of the number of um, pictures of, you know, Skittles that we've seen splashed all over the media. And in fact, a lot of celebrities uh, have recently been, been been sharing that. But the the um, the first time that I heard this um, commotion about titanium dioxide, and, and you just alluded to it, uh, was on TikTok. This outcry about titanium dioxide being used in, I believe, uh, tampons specifically, but period products, and it had something to do with the color, the coloring of the tampons. I believe that's why it's added. I, I honestly, yeah, it, it, yeah. White, it's a titanium dioxide is a white mineral. It's right. um, it's a, it's it's you know. And so it whitens things. It makes things brighter. That's, you know, it's used in toothpaste. It's used in, in um, you know, those products for that reason. And so even just putting the policy aside now, well, and I obviously if a policy did pass, that would have implications for, for the products that we're using and consuming. But this led to so much fear. How many messages did we get from people who are saying that they were throwing out their tampons? They're terrified. They don't know, you know, that that's their preferred period product. And, you know, should I take this away from my teenage dog? you know, all these questions. It's really unfortunate that, you know, in many ways we're becoming less scientifically literate as a society because we're letting celebrities and people that, that aren't qualified to make these decisions, make these decisions by through through the spread of just patently false information. And just one other note, and I know we had some other uh, other examples we wanted to get through, but you raised a really important point about how this particular, was it red, red dye number red, three? Red dye um, number three. It's not actually banned. So you just Correct. completely debunk that. It just goes by a different name. And this is, we see this all the time and people will say, oh, but it's banned in, in Europe. It's banned in other countries. It should be banned in the US. So first of all, it's not. In Japan, it's called number 216 or food red number three. Um, so it's also not banned in Japan. But it, I, it just makes me think of this larger issue issue where we see people throwing that in our faces all the time. It's banned elsewhere. It should be banned here. People need to understand that different countries have different assessment tools for assessing the safety of different uh, ingredients, right? And so the U.S. takes a risk-based approach and Europe, for example, takes a hazard-based approach, which means that if anything even has the potential to be dangerous, it is often banned. Whereas in the U.S., we take a risk-based approach, which means that we take into account 
exposure levels. And yeah, so the likelihood. The likelihood of any harm actually occurring. And so at the dose, at the concentration at which these the titanium dioxide in this particular example is present in our period products or in the foods that we're consuming, it is so minute, it is such a low, low level that it is not harmful. And so I wish people understood that when they started, when they, you know, they point fingers at the U.S. Um, as having some, you know, um, that, that our regulatory system is in bed with industry and that, you know, that, that, that that's not the case. There are plenty of things that are, you know, banned here that are permitted in other countries, including Europe. So it's it's just a, a weird false dichotomy. And I think it's also really important, again, to reiterate that just because something is, there's some sort of legislation about it does not mean that that's based on evidence. And that's the same logic that's applied when people are using lawsuits as evidence. A lawsuit is not scientific evidence. And I think it's, you know, other, or, other organizations, including the International Association of Color Manufacturers, have, have also come out and stated that that, um, you know, particularly this bill, this California Assembly Bill 418, it's not based on any sort of sound scientific assessment. It undermines established regulations from these expert agencies like the FDA. And FDA has continually evaluated all of these substances and is it, it undergoes a rigorous review process um, at all times. And, and I think that part is really important where we have people who are pushing personal beliefs it undermines the ability of these expert science and, and public health agencies to do the job they're supposed to do. And that's a trend that we see with other situations like mifepristone, um, which is another topic that's relevant, where mifepristone, which is a demonstrably safe medication, is currently under attack by the Supreme Court of the U.S. and a variety of um, people on the other side of the political spectrum. So this is being led primarily by Republicans um, or right-leaning individuals, and they're claiming that mifepristone should be pulled because it's, it's harmful, it's unsafe. And if you actually look at the selected mortality rates of mifepristone compared to a variety. First of all, mifepristone has been approved by the FDA for over 20 years, and it is demonstrably safe and effective for its intended uses. So, so mifepristone is a prescription medication that has been FDA approved, as Andrea said, for over 20 years, since the year 2000. It was initially manufactured in France in 1980, and it has since been licensed for use in 80 other countries around the world. So if you're not familiar, it halts pregnancy progression by blocking production of progesterone, and this causes the uterine lining to thin and triggers shedding. As a result, it is a safe and effective method of abortion that could be used in early pregnancy, 11 weeks or earlier, and it's used for induced abortion, but also in the case of spontaneous abortion, uh, miscarriage, and other reproductive issues, um, such as blighted ovum. Absolutely. So, of course, um, the political insinuations have been that it's it's unsafe and it's harmful, and, and as such, it shouldn't, should be pulled, it should be banned. Um, so if you compare the um, 
mortality rates associated with use of mifepristone compared to a variety of other FDA-approved medications, including over-the-counter medications, which you don't even need a prescription. You can just go to your local Target or CVS or Walgreens and buy them, but also prescription medications. Um, Something like aspirin has a mortality rate of about 0.0153%. Something like Viagra, which is a prescription that is very enthusiastically used by many people, has a selected mortality rate of 0.0049%. And then mifepristone has a selected mortality rate of 0.00065%. So it's orders of magnitude safer than things that we don't even think second thoughts about, about, you know, consuming and using for their medical indications. Now, All of those medications that I just listed, and we have many others on other posts, are are safe for use. Everything has a potential adverse effect risk, but the issue is that only one of them is being questioned for safety, and it actually happens to be the safest one when you actually look at the data. And this is, you know, really unfortunate, again, because this is undermining the role of the FDA in order to monitor and approve the safety of medications as well as other consumer products, such as foods, um, based on what's real and what's credible with regard to the scientific evidence. And unfortunately, it no longer is being empowered to do this in an independent manner. And uh, whether we're talking about abortion medication or we're talking about foods or chemicals used in process and manufacturing of foods or consumer products, personal opinion and personal biases should not be the ones that are dictating what's going to be in the market and what's going to be available to individuals. It really should be guided by the evidence. And that's ultimately why scientific experts and expert agencies exist and should exist and should be consulted when when these sorts of policies are being implemented. That's why it's so frustrating when it's being done under this guise of, oh, we're, we're passing this legislation for, you know, uh, in to, the name to of protect health people and to make, yeah. when clearly, I mean, the, the data tell a very different story. That's the other thing when we talk, you know, like like it's all, you know, especially with, with um, California uh, AB 418, it's all, you know, the news articles, obviously, you know, there's a lot of people who have very, very colored personal beliefs that are, that are, you know, populated with chemophobia. And it's all like, oh, well, we want our foods to be safe for our kids. You know, our food supply has never been safer, you know, and, and it's just, it's very frustrating that this fallacy is, is kind of being propagated um, and exacerbated by social media and media outlets. And in many instances, they're not super receptive to wanting to talk to scientific experts um, because, you know, it's not as clickbait worthy in some instances that, you know, things that instill fear, things that instill anxiety are more effective to, you know, grab people's attention. So, Andrea, just to round out this conversation uh, before we turn things over to our fireside chat with Sharon. Did you want to chat? I know there was an example in the Lyme disease world. Lyme disease is obviously um, cannon fodder for misinformation and has been for for decades, but we we did see a similar situation where um, uh, former Connecticut Senator Richard Blumenthal, who who happens to be a Democrat, as I said, you know we've we've got these sort of chemophobia and, and misinformation and, and non evidence based practices happening on on all sides. He went after when he was the Attorney General. He went after the Infectious Disease Society of America because of false information and and public pressure and and personal biases about their clinical guidelines for diagnosis and treatment of Lyme disease. And because of that undue attention that that he 
kind of garnered with regard to Lyme disease, that really accelerated the rate of advocacy organizations that spread fear-based messaging about Lyme disease, about um, chronic Lyme, which we've discussed at length on other episodes, about um, treatment guidance and, and all of that. And again, none of that is is based on evidence. And um, it actually led to multiple lawsuits against the Infectious Disease Society of America, which is one of the expert agencies and organizations in infectious diseases. And again, they should be empowered to do their job as scientific and clinical experts. And instead, they're they're fighting legal battles because, you know, people feel, feel personally affronted um, because they're not being told what they want to hear. And um, yeah, all of this really undoubtedly undermines public health, public safety, community health, and certainly science literacy. Um, And so I think it's really important for people to understand that government has a role in these sorts of things, but it really needs to be working hand in hand with the experts and seeking out expert guidance instead of leading with personal uh, opinions. You know, this this makes me think of a post that we did recently. Um, You know, you and I have both been told by many people that we've somehow sold out by not working in academia. And it's like people want to keep scientists in this academic bubble without realizing that we need scientists to work in every, you know, in every field, in every industry. I mean, we need actual scientists to not feel that stigma and bias because we we need to be on the front lines helping to to inform these policies. Yeah. And policymakers and politicians and people in these sorts of roles need to be receptive to seeking out the the credible experts and not simply cherry picking, you know, what what supports their the misinformation they've heard and have been led to believe. All right. Well, any last thoughts before we turn things over to our uh, or shift gears to our fireside chat? I think we. I I, think we I have a lot of examples. thoughts. No, I think yeah, I, I have a lot of thoughts, but I think um, I think uh, we did due diligence. Cool. Well, we hope you enjoyed this little introduction, and we hope that you enjoy the fireside chat with Sharon McMahon. Stay tuned. All right. So without any further ado, we are so excited to introduce today's guest who honestly needs no introduction. The one, the only Sharon McMahon, also known as Sharon Says So on social media. Sharon, thank you so much for joining us today. Oh, it's truly a pleasure. Thank you for inviting me. And um, I was telling Sharon just before we hit record that we, I'd say the number one recommendation we get for a guest on the pod is Sharon McMahon. You have to have Sharon on um, because Sharon, it's like you're a trusted source of unbiased information in the in the government world. Um, and we're obviously trying to do it um, similarly in the science world. So oh, yes, thank you. exciting Thanks stuff. Thanks for having me. Yes. Um, all right. So a little bit about Sharon. Um, Sharon is a former high school government and law teacher who earned a reputation as America's government teacher amidst the historic 2020 election proceedings for her viral efforts on Instagram to educate the general public on political misinformation. Hmm. 
hmm, sounds familiar. Mm. (laughs) 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 Through a simple mission to share nonpartisan information about democracy, Sharon has amassed hundreds of thousands of followers online. And actually, I think you're at 1 million on Instagram, which is wow. Mm -hmm. Um, Mm -hmm. Affectionately called the governors who look to her for truth and logic in a society plagued by bias and conspiracy. So we'll, we'll tag all of Sharon's pages and, and her website and our show notes, but you can follow her amazing content at Sharon says so again, we'll, we'll tag her. Um, just so, so, so excited about this. All right. So let my background, as you all know, is actually in public health, but specifically in health policy. There are my dogs. Thank you. Um, and you know, we get a lot of questions about health policy and there are a lot of different directions and topics that we could cover. So I just want to sort of set the stage for what it is that we are and are not going to talk about today. Um, And then I'll turn things over to Andrea and, and of course, to to Sharon. So just setting the stage, um, the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services is a cabinet-level executive branch department of the U.S. federal government created to protect the health of the American people and provide essential human services. So its motto is, quote, improving the health, safety, and well-being of America. So HHS has 12 operating divisions, including nine agencies in the U.S. Public Health Service and three human services agencies, including the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services, or CMS, the Indian Health Service, IHS, the CDC, the FDA, Health Resources and Services Administration, and the Agency for Healthcare Research and Quality, and more. And then many government programs and policies have, of course, as we know, been put in place to reduce the burden of illness, injury, and disability and to improve the health and functioning of the population. So in terms of government healthcare programs, and now we're really talking about the delivery of healthcare um, and programs in place to deliver healthcare, we're talking about things like Medicare, Medicaid, um, SCHIP, which stands for the State Children's Health Insurance Program, the Department of Defense TRICARE, and the, um, the Veterans Health Administration, and the Indian Health Service Program. And then depending on on the program, each is managed and administered by policies either on the federal or the state level, and each has a different focus with regard to populations impacted and overseen. So for example, Medicare is delivered to the 65 and older population. And then of course, there are also global organizations like the WHO and UNICEF. There's lots we could talk about. And then whenever we talk about health policy, Andrea, you know this, we get a lot of questions about the structure of the U.S. healthcare system um, with regard to things like private insurance and then alternatives that we see in other countries like single payer um, and universal coverage and stuff like that. That's an entirely separate topic, but we promise that we have episodes lined up on those topics. But today, we really want to dig into the relationship between government from a policy perspective and healthcare. Now, and historically, and also how people feel that that relationship is an infringement on their constitutional rights and whether or not that's accurate. So, um, Andrea, do you want to sort of set the stage here and, you know, get the conversation kicked off? Well, something I like to say a lot is that, you know, many people don't realize that really everything related to science and healthcare is 
related to politics or related to government in some way, because government really broadly relates to infrastructure and institutions that have been created in order to ensure that society functions. And sometimes it functions better than others. And, you know, certain things are are up for improvement. But a lot of times, you know, we get um, comments or pushback from people who feel like, you know, the government shouldn't have a role in making healthcare policy with regard to public health measures or with regard to access to certain medical interventions. And as we get into kind of the meat of this conversation, I think I'm, I'm hoping a lot of people realize that it's a lot more complex and nuanced, um, you know, than, than many people realize. Um, but I think maybe we can start from the beginning. So Sharon, you know, can you give us a trip down memory lane and kind of talk about some of the earliest or earlier examples of the government and its role in healthcare. Mm. Well, I mean, the government has had a role in healthcare in some capacity since Europeans have come to the United States and they probably there were healthcare measures in indigenous communities as well. But you can look back to the uh, late 1600s, early 1700s, when there were outbreaks of contagious illness, where some level of government was involved in things like quarantining. And of course, their understanding of, you know, what public health was was a little different than it is today, a little different. Uh, and of course, a lot of what they were doing perhaps would not be what we would do today or would be unrecognizable with today's uh, health uh, standards. But to say that the government doesn't belong in healthcare, that's certainly an opinion that people are welcome to have. They can say we should get out of it. They're not and shouldn't be involved in it. But it has always been that way to varying degrees. One of the most famous examples, of course, is when George Washington uh, mandated that the entire army in the United States get, it wasn't kind of called vaccination then because it was not the same type of product that we think of with vaccines with the syringe, Um, but it was a form of inoculation called variolation, that uh, they wanted everybody to be inoculated against smallpox, which was killing massive quantities of the revolutionary troops that George Washington is trying to fight this impossible war with. And he knows that if he does nothing, that by the end of the winter, most of these guys will be dead. Smallpox had an incredibly high rate of killing people. It was like around 30% mortality rate at the time. What if I told you that you can support your blood pressure and healthy CoQ10 levels with two chews a day? The new Super Beats Heart Chews Advanced is now supercharged with CoQ10. That's like getting CoQ10 for free. Our powerful blend of beetroot, grapeseed extract, and CoQ10 supports your cardiovascular health. Visit RadioBeats.com and find out how you can get a free 30-day supply on bundles and save 15% with the promo code DEAL. And so if he did nothing, they were all going to die. <laughs> and they're all living in with incredible malnutrition. They're all living in incredibly close quarters. They do not have appropriate gear. All of these things are, you know, making it more likely that they'll catch it and also making it uh, making them less less likely to be able to fight it off. So it involved secretly, I might add, it was not it was not a like hey everybody come on down 8 p.m. We're going to get you, make sure you're, you know, inoculated. He had to do it secretly because he knew there would be public pushback. 
but also because of the way that it worked. The idea was that they needed to make you a little bit sick so you wouldn't get a lot sick later. And he could not let the British know that a certain percentage of his guys were going to be a little bit sick for a period of time. And Sharon, I love this example. And and we, you know, shamelessly, we reuse this on July 4th every year because, because it really it really goes to the foundation of U.S. history, like in many in many regards, the United States of America, as we know it, wouldn't exist if it weren't for variolation. So, so you know, George Washington mandated all troops coming through Philadelphia. I actually live um, in between Philly and Valley Forge. So this whole history of that winter in Valley Forge, there's a great exhibit at the National Historic Park. Um, the docents are awesome. But, but, um, but anyway, so, you know, Valley Forge, it's this valley. It's unprotected. The winter was brutal. They didn't have food. The local would not um, give them supplies and they're dying of smallpox. And so George Washington was like, listen, anybody that's coming through Philadelphia port is getting inoculated essentially. And and you're absolutely right. It reduced smallpox mortality from 30% to about 3%. And I love this little tidbit that not a lot of people know is that there was a lot of uh, public pushback about public health measures like this even back then. And in Quebec, Benedict Arnold actually forbade people from undergoing variolation. And the troops that were in Quebec actually fled because they were scared of dying of smallpox. They're, they were too sick with smallpox to fight and their script conscriptions were up and they decided not to re-enlist because they didn't want to be forced into fighting without being vaccinated. And many historians, and maybe Sharon, you can attest to this, um, believe that that's possibly a contributor as to why we don't own Canada nowadays. And so, you know, we like to say, okay, well, you know, these public health measures and specifically vaccine mandates have really really led to the birth of the country in many ways. Mm. There are also examples of people who openly advocated for variolation, uh, like a, a minister from the pulpit, one specifically whose name was Cotton Mather, who people were so angry that he was doing that, that they firebombed his house. Yes. In the 1700s. Yes, absolutely. So this idea that there ha- there's this pushback to public health measures is brand new, started happening in 2020, uh, is not at all rooted in history or fact. Uh, Americans, turns out, some of them have strongly believed in like this notion of the common good, and we ought to do this for the common good. Uh, and But there have always been people who didn't care about the common good and wanted what was best for them. Uh, And there has always been suspicion of public health measures that were enacted from on high, no matter how well they worked. As you just mentioned, like smallpox disease plummeted when people uh, used variolation. Uh, Abigail Adams famously got her children, you know, inoculated against smallpox. Uh, and it's it's actually a very sort of disgusting way to go yeah. about it. You know, if you like make a cut yeah. in their arm, take rub a sore stu- from rub an some stuff in person, it. Yeah. <laughs> rub it in there, hope you don't die. You know, like it seems real disgusting by today's standards. But thankfully, we've come a long way. Yes, uh uh-huh, uh-huh. I was going to say, I wish people were more grateful for modern science. We're going to get an alcohol swab. 
no infection for you. Boom. Have a great day. So Sharon, you bring up, I mean, you mentioned that I think a lot of people feel like this has really become an issue around 2020, you know, the pandemic, and we're talking about things like vaccines and and mandates. Um, That's really become a very hot topic. Um, A lot of Critics, you know, saying that vaccine mandates are a violation of their constitutional rights. So can we talk a little bit about that and maybe some other cases that have come before the Supreme Court and just talk about, yeah, you know, government healthcare stuff? (laughs) Yeah. And actually, maybe before we do that, if you can give everyone just like a primer of like the formation of SCOTUS and like what you know, what the, what the intention of it was. And then, you know, the decisions regarding constitutional rights of some of these healthcare mandates. Mm. Do you mean, uh, the formation of the Supreme court from, from its inception or like recent, maybe, maybe like, you know, early 1900s, late 1800s, you know, when we talk about some of the, the cases that kind of became precedent for upholding the constitutionality of some of these public health interventions. The Supreme court has always, it's pendulum has always swung ideologically. That is just, that's the nature of government in many ways. It's just like the the pendulum of the presidency and Congress has swung back and forth. That said, over time, the Supreme Court has heard a number of cases related to public health measures, and they heard a bunch of them recently in like during the COVID pandemic. But it this, these were not the first public health cases that the Supreme Court has ever heard. Uh, one of the most famous uh, and still frequently brought up cases is about vaccination, Jacobson v. Massachusetts, and whether or not a person has to get vaccinated. And this is something that I think, uh, you know, vaccinated against a a contagious illness. This is one of the things that I think uh, people sometimes lose sight of, which is that there is a difference between you must do this and we are going to hold you down, strap you down and you subject you to anything that we want, which is what we're thinking of in terms of Nazi Germany, where people were involuntarily subjected to horrific medical procedures. That's, I think, what people are thinking of when we're talking about vaccine mandates, that somebody's going to come to your house with a gun and be like, take the shot or uh, strap you down, force you to do it. That is not what is happening in the United States, fortunately. And if it is what is happening, then we need to put an end to that right away, right? Like that, that cannot happen. So what we're talking about when we're talking about vaccine mandates is being required in the case of Jacobson v. Massachusetts, required to get this inoculation or pay a fine. That is what happened in Jacobson. Do this or pay a fine. And the person in that case did not want to pay a fine because he believed that being required to get this inoculation violated his sort of uh, personal autonomy, his his belief system. And there has always been a tension in the United States in a variety of ways, health and otherwise, and other types of public policy between people's individual religious beliefs, their religious liberty, and public health. There has always been that tension going back to uh, Jacobson v. Massachusetts from the 19th century, um, this tension between personal beliefs and public health. So that's also not a new idea in the United States that there is a tension between these two things. Now, some people fall on the side of like, 
there are no organized religions that forbid you from getting something that stops communicable diseases. Like, just get it. There's some people who feel that way. And other people who feel like, it's my religious belief if I say it's my religious belief. And I am allowed to say whatever I want about what it is I believe. I believe that that's what God told me to do. And God told me to do it, and that is my religious belief. So you have this sort of wide spectrum of what actually constitutes a sincerely held religious belief. And one of the things the Supreme Court has said over and over is that people are allowed to have those sincerely held religious beliefs, and government is allowed to have uh, restrictions on types of activities, and government is allowed to say you are required to participate in this public health measure if you wish to do X, Y, and Z. For example, you are allowed to, uh, the government is allowed to say you need to wear a mask on an airplane if you wish to uh, participate in air travel. Uh, You are required to, you know, do X, Y, and Z thing if you wish to do A, B, and C. So this tension has always existed and routinely With a few exceptions, the Supreme Court has come down on the side of, yes, people can have their sincerely held religious beliefs and not receive whatever medical treatment it is that they do not wish to receive, a blood transfusion, a vaccine, whatever it is. And additionally, government is allowed to enact public health measures for the benefit of society. I I love the the kind of comparison, you know, I it's not mutually exclusive. You're absolutely right. And and I think a lot of people kind of get hung up on that. And you make a, a several great points that, you know, the Supreme Court has has held repeatedly that, you know, these beliefs, you know, you can't pass a law that would impact a single person, but these laws that benefit society as a whole and the health of society is is really essential for the functioning of society um you know those are within the scope right and you know we talk about liberty and freedom and all of that but it's not freedom from consequences. They're not being forced. They're not being restrained. They're not being tormented or tortured. But if you opt to not do something to participate in certain activities of that collective society, then there may be repercussions or or fallout like a fine or like not being able to send your child to public school if you are in a state that have vaccine requirements and you don't want to get them vaccinated or not being able to ride certain types of transit or so on. So I think it's a really important distinction to make. You two will know, and I'm just ignorant, by the way, um, government was always my my worst subject <laughs> in school. And I wish I had a teacher like you, Sharon. But, you know, I do, we hear a lot, you know, on the basis or opting out of, of, of vaccines on the basis of religious exemption. Like, I don't know, how does that happen? Like how, like on, on what grounds? Like, is it written somewhere in some religious document? You know, I'm just trying to understand how do we like assess the cred- credibility of those claims mm. of exemption? That That's where I mm-hmm, get a little mm-hmm. confused. Yeah, that's a great question. And uh, the Supreme Court has routinely said that we don't assess the credibility of somebody's beliefs. The test is how sincerely held are they? That is the test. It's not, well, I see here in your holy book that it says don't inject things with a syringe and thus your beliefs are credible. 
It is not about the credibility of one's beliefs. You are allowed to have the most outlandish beliefs in the world. You can believe that the flying spaghetti monster uh, exists and that is your deity if you sincerely believe it that is protected under law. So it's it's not about credibility, but talking about this idea of how do vaccine exemptions work? That is done by and large specifically when we're talking about things like school attendance, that is done by and large by state uh state health departments. As you both know, much of healthcare is delivered by states in the United States and not by the federal government. The federal government funds a lot of it like Medicare, Medicaid, things like that. But it's up to the states to actually administer those programs. And so things like school attendance, vaccine requirements for school attendance done on a state-by-state basis. And so the state decides for themselves, what kind of exemptions will we permit for school attendance, if any? Some states, uh, like my own state of Minnesota, has three types of exemptions, medical, religious, and philosophical. You are allowed to just philosophically object to vaccines in the state of Minnesota. Other states have, like New York, for example, have almost no exemptions where it is extremely difficult to even get a medical exemption of like, my child has a legitimate allergy to the stated ingredients on the package insert. Uh, They legitimately will have anaphylaxis. Even under those circumstances, it can be difficult to get an exemption in other states. So in terms of religious exemption, States decide for themselves, do they want to permit a religious exemption? And what is the criteria that they will use to uh, some that a person has to use to demonstrate their sincerely held religious beliefs? Most of the time it it includes getting signing a statement and getting it notarized that these are my sincerely held beliefs that I oppose uh, vaccination on religious grounds. But there is no governing body that is like your religion is approved. That is not a thing in the United yeah. States. And and I think, you know, it's 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 important because, you know, there's multiple levels of government, right? We have the federal government, which includes the Supreme Court, which, you know, can make laws and, and precedents and legal ramifications that are going to affect every state in the country. But a lot of things that relate to health care, relate to science, relate to day to day implementation, Public health yeah, measures. all sorts of mm-hmm. things, um, mm-hmm. really come at a, at a state by state level, yep. you know, so, so you have all these different layers. It makes it much more complicated for people to navigate and really understand right. the implications. That's right. So, so Sharon, maybe before, cause there's a couple other things I want to touch on, but maybe you can kind of take people through, you know, how do, does the government decide which of these become a topic for legislating policy? And within that, how do they determine or how does either a state determine or the federal government determine which entity is going to be in charge of that? Mm -hmm. Well, that's a very... (laughs) Complicated question, Andrea. <laughs> I'll I'll give, give, me, you give me the clip a couple notes of little version. things to think <laughs> yeah. about. Yeah, a couple of things to think about. Okay, so the ability to make rules about things like public health is the purview of the legislative branch. Here is the problemo: the legislative branch uh, rarely knows anything about public health. <laughs> 
right? (laughs) They rarely know anything about clean water or like how to fly an airplane or any of the things that they need to make rules about. And so they delegate their legislative uh, rulemaking authority to an executive department. They say, as Congress, we don't know how to make planes safe in the sky. So we are going to create an executive department called the Federal Aviation Administration, and we are going to delegate our rulemaking authority to them so that they, as the experts in air travel, they will make the rules that will keep us safe because we got nothing. Uh, the same is true of all the executive departments. Do you, do you want Congress regulate, like deciding what makes nuclear energy safe? I do not. Okay. I do not. Some of these people believe in Jewish space lasers. Lasers. Okay. Some of them are literal wackadoodles. Uh, and some of them are not. Some of them are super smart. Like I'm a physician, I'm a lawyer, I'm a whatever. Some of them are not, but some of them are wackadoodles and we all, we all know it's true. We all do. Uh, I don't want that person deciding, like, should I have a nuclear uh, fallout in my backyard? I don't want that. So I want somebody who actually understands how that thing works to make those rules. And the same is true of things like health programs. It's also true at the state level. The state legislative branch delegates their rulemaking authority to executive departments like the state health department. And in the case of emergency situations like we had with during COVID, where we had these health emergencies, public health emergencies, where governors could say, you need to wear masks in businesses indoors. Or sometimes they didn't say that. Sometimes they said, just use your best judgment. That kind of rulemaking authority comes from the legislative branch. They delegate their rulemaking authority to uh, either an executive department or to an executive like a governor or president. So sometimes there is something called the major questions doctrine, which is where that executive department is overstepping their rulemaking authority, where it they're making rules that are like, say what now? You are not, that is not what we said. Okay, we did not say make rules about that. We said make rules about airplanes. We did not say make rules about how many ear holes women are allowed to get. Okay, that's not your job. If Congress wanted you to make rules about ear piercing, they would have said that when they made the FAA charter. If they wanted you to do that, they would have said that, but they didn't. So we're going to have to put a stop to that. And you've seen the Supreme Court actually take take that uh tactic a couple of times recently related to student loan forgiveness, related to EPA regulations, where they said, that is not what we told you to make rules about. We did not say forgive student loans. We did not say uh, use the following things about to create clean air and clean water. So the major questions doctrine is part of what reigns in the executive branch from going haywire and willy-nilly and making rules about things that are completely unrelated that they that oversteps their bounds. That is so interesting. And also, you know, I mean, I think it's the structure is kind of ripe for manipulation and all in all layers, right? We've we've seen what happens when legislative arms um 
you know, refuse to do their work. We've seen when the mm-hmm, Supreme mm-hmm. Court or, or other judicial arms overstep and impart a non-impartial uh, opinion on something. So so maybe we can like dig in because because there is this disconnect, right? There's this disconnect with regard to, you know, first a lot of people don't really understand that like the executive branch does not have final say on everything that, you know, if if mm-hmm. a governor or president wants to do X, Y, or Z, often they, you know, it's really managed by, you know, the the state or the federal legislature or, you know, the Senate specifically or the House specifically. And, and so there's a lot of, you know, just just general misunderstanding. But there's also a lot of strong opinions and and often disconnects with regard to, you know, how the government is involved in science and healthcare. You know, many people, you know, want it to be very selective or want it to cater to their personal beliefs, whether they those are mm-hmm. political, religious, philosophical, at the expense of other people's personal, political, religious, philosophical beliefs. So, you know, let's let's use some of these uh, controversial topics because we're never controversial. So, you know, we 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 don't want the government to be involved in mandating vaccines for public health, but we want them to regulate and control the ability of people to access abortion or other healthcare measures. We want um, private employers to provide healthcare um, or, or insurance coverage for healthcare, but, you know, don't want them to kind of pick and choose and use high deductible plans or plans that don't grant a lot of coverage or it, it imparts their personal ideologies. And so certain things aren't covered or are covered. So, how do we reconcile this disconnect with regard to the government's role, you know, when it seems sometimes that, you know, they're making different decisions for topics that are really kind of under the same umbrella? Yeah, that is a very common way to feel. Uh, I don't know anybody who is like, I agree with all of the government's decisions on any topic, health, science, airplanes, ear holes, doesn't matter what it is. Very few people are like, mm-hmm, mm-hmm, that's right, that they did it correctly. Uh, in part because democracy is very inefficient. That's one of the downsides of democracy, as much as we love it, as important as it is, it's inefficient. It takes a long time. You have sometimes have bad actors making decisions. Uh, you have people who are very unqualified to be making these decisions, making decisions. That's just a reality of democracy is that sometimes weirdos get elected and weirdos who have financial ties to certain uh, groups or certain industries and they feel beholden to those certain groups and industries. So there are a variety of uh, things involved in government decision-making that confound the system and that make people, average, ordinary person, think to themselves, listen, your logic does not hold water. Why is it okay for you to make decisions about X health thing, but not Y health thing or vice versa? I don't want you to make decisions about X health thing, but I do want you to make it about Y health thing. Because the system, democracy, and specifically United States democracy, it was set up 
to be complicated. It was set up to be complicated on purpose. It's complicated on purpose. It's not just you. It's not just the listener being like, why is it so complicated? No, it's complicated on purpose. Uh, The more complicated it is, the harder it is to co-opt and corrupt. So in some ways, having additional layers of complication makes it harder for a single individual to just railroad over an entire system, makes it much harder for a dictator to come to power and seize control and do everything that they want to do. So yes, the complications are infuriating sometimes. (laughs) Uh, Yes, sometimes crazy people come to power and do things that are nonsensical, Uh, but sometimes Uh, That actually is also a protective mechanism in that it makes it really, really difficult to screw up the entire system with like one little stick in the wheel. So I can't give you an answer, Andrea, that is like, here is why the government makes rules about sunscreen. Why do we treat sunscreen as a drug in the United States when it's considered a cosmetic everywhere else? Uh, And we make all of these really high tech filters that are in use in like Australia, Japan, Europe. Those are all acceptable everywhere else. And they seemingly have higher health standards than we do, but we can't use them here. You know what I mean? I don't have a an answer for like, here is the one answer that's going to satisfy you and make you feel like, now I get it. Now I agree. Because it doesn't exist. There is no now I get it and agree button that I, that I, that I can press. Um, the answer is that it's complicated. And there are a lot of actors. I think that's the biggest component of this all, right? You know, everything is interconnected. There are so many different layers of regulation and oversight and things like that. But we know that sometimes legislation is not necessarily uh, aligned with science and evidence, right? So, yeah, absolutely. So, you yes. know, what about, I don't even know if this is there's an answer to this, but what about this type of overreach when government or individual government officials introduce legislation um, that that doesn't have science to support it, whether this is, and again, this is, this is something that I want to emphasize to everyone because I talk about this all the time. This happens on all sides and all corners of every political um, mm-hmm. leaning, whether mm-hmm. it's a, a liberal, you know, um, a liberal legislator that maybe got misled by a, 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 an advocacy group like the Environmental Working Group, which I very strong feelings about how they cherry pick their data, or it's it's a Republican leaning or, or a highly religious evangelical um, individual who, you know, has strong feelings about women's health care interventions, abortion, contraception, and so on. And, and a lot of times those beliefs color the information that they select because they're cherry picking to support their personal biases. You know, we're seeing that right now with the legislation in California that's trying to ban titanium dioxide and and a lot of personal individuals are suing Skittles. Titanium dioxide, there's no data to support the claims that it's harmful to people. I just want to get that off the books. Um, It's a naturally occurring mineral. It it makes things brighter. It's used in thousands of different products. Anyway, but what what's the solution for that? Or how does that get resolved or reconciled when, you know, these don't, these things seem to be, 
obviously not in the best interest of health and science, um, but it also is then used as uh, evidence to suggest or insinuate that these things that they're trying to ban or legislate are harmful for people. Yeah, titanium dioxide used in sunscreen. <laughs> Going Two back things. to my sunscreen so analogies. Yeah. So, you know, like how how do we deal with that situation it, when somebody or a government agency is trying to make rules that are not at all rooted in real science? I mean, that is the million dollar question that came out of 2020 and 2021, right? Um, sometimes you had competing, seemingly uh, both legitimate groups where you have one group of doctors saying one thing and another group of doctors saying another thing. And I, you know, I think that's one of the reasons people follow you is because it is really, really difficult for the average person with no training or background on a topic related to science, especially high level, complicated science, especially science where it is related to somebody's personal health. And if they are making personal health decisions based on the advice of a certain group, and those personal health decisions can have very, very significant consequences to themselves and others. They want to make, you know, the right decision. Some people want to make the right decision. Other people feel like I want to do what I want to do. Uh, but both groups feel at odds with whoever is at whoever is in charge of making the decisions. And, you know, as you as you know, because uh, you have a background in public health, Jess, this is not a simple topic where we can just say, okay, we have found the five best experts on RSV or mineral sunscreen versus chemical sunscreen, or like pick a, any topic in the world. We've found the five best people and they're going to make the decisions for us. Uh, just the fact that they're the best people means that some people are going to oppose them. <laughs> just the fact that they each have 14 PhDs means that some people are going to be like, get out of here with your degrees. Get out of here with your training. Stop trying to be better than me with your training and your and your education. <laughs> I'm sure you're both very familiar with this tiny subset Ugh. of the population that's like, your training means nothing. Yes, and that we're weaponizing uh -huh. our credentials. Uh -huh. and yes. Mm -hmm. <laughs> yeah. That is yes. that's that's mm, Again, going back to the history of the United States, that faction has always been here and will always be here. There will never be a time where we're like, took care of them. Bye-bye. You know what I mean? <laughs> That's not a thing. So, Sharon, I feel like morale <laughs> is low mm -hmm. right now, mm -hmm. though. In, in, I mean, across the board, Ugh. this is not just specific to, to science or mm -hmm. healthcare. Um, we're, we're chuckling because, you know, we, we get a, a lot of messages sort of indicating this. And so I guess, do you have any messages for folks who feel like, you know, things are bleak? Is there anything, anything actionable that we could do, um, you know, especially for people who feel that the government shouldn't be involved in health care, health policy, mm -hmm. anything positive to share on mm, this front? Mm. Well, I think, you know, in today's sort of modern era of uh, mass communication via viral uh, social media information, that the work that people like you are doing, it is very clear how important it is, how needed it is, and it is actually really impossible to measure the impact that you're having. 
So I would encourage people who feel like all I get is hate. (laughs) All I get are mean DMs. It's all mean DMs 24-7. Like I'm very familiar yeah, I'm with sure this, you by are. The way. Okay, like the main DMs. You oh, of course. Them? How could anyone oh, be mean to you? Oh, of course. Of course. Yeah. What? You're so. I mean, what's the word? I'm looking diplomatic. I, I, I'm so generally a nice yeah. person. It, it doesn't, doesn't matter because because mm-hmm. no matter what you say, you're going to offend somebody on some mm-hmm. side of some belief. That's right. Something. It doesn't matter how nicely you say it. If if the person is like, I don't like the words coming out of your mouth. They are definitely mm-hmm. going to send you a mean DM, which I'm sure both of you have received uh, your fair share of mean DMs. So what I what I oh am trying to say though is that um, for every mean DM, there are probably ten to twenty people who are like, I learned this important thing from this website, and I am I now know about A, B, and C and didn't know that before. And they're not necessarily going to take the time to be like, just want to let you know that I went to the doctor today and I felt really empowered and I understood what they were saying. Like, they're probably not going to do that. But they are then able to impart um, useful and correct science information to their children and their friends and their neighbors. And so when it feels like all you are getting or mean DMs, or combative patients, or people who are, uh, you know, sending you hate mail because you work for the public health service. When it seems like all you are is all you're getting is opposition, you have to realize that you are having a much larger impact than is even possible to measure. And that despite the resistance that some people will always give you, there will never be a time when everyone agrees. And so we have to, at some level, accept that this is going to be a continuing, ongoing battle. That despite the resistance that you may be receiving, what you are doing is important. And one of the ways that I cope with this and I would imagine a lot of science-minded people follow you or science-curious people follow you, is I, I remind myself that I refuse to be distracted from my important work. And whatever your important work is, you're a nurse, you're a stay-at-home parent, you're a teacher, you run a science podcast, whatever it is, your work is important. And we cannot allow ourselves to be distracted from our important work by people whose main goal is to uh, leverage discord in an effort to keep you from doing what is important, in an effort to keep you off of Instagram providing education, in an effort to keep you off of podcasting to provide education for people, or me off of social media, off of podcast, etc. The goal is to keep you from doing your important work, and you can refuse to be distracted from your important work and realize that you may never fully know the impact of your important work here and now in the today. Uh, But someday there's going to be a Wikipedia (laughs) article about you. (laughs) Oh my gosh. Someday there is going to be a Wikipedia article about you. (laughs) You heard it here first. Sharon said it. Um, and you're, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I love it. And and kids of I the future it. are going to be like so interesting. I didn't know. Like oh, so they were just like they were. They started a science <laughs> podcast, and now I know it's possible for me to start a science podcast. 
Aww. Uh, you don't even know we what the impact you're having is. Well, likewise, Sharon. Yes. Really, you're amazing. So, so I'm going to give like the TLDR here. So government, since the dawn of time, since there was essentially structured government, has always been involved in science and, and healthcare and health policy. That's right. And it's not as simple as, well, I think it should be this way, therefore it will be this way, because there are many degrees of complexity and different types of structures of governments. And even within the U.S., there are different levels and layers of government. There's state, there's federal, there's different branches. And it can't really be distilled into a single, you know, black and white. Well, this is right. This is wrong because government is run by individuals and individuals have personal biases and beliefs. And unfortunately, um, those things can color how our decisions are made and how they weight certain measures. But the goal of a functioning society and ideally the fact that our government, albeit sometimes frustratingly slow, the goal of how complex it is, is to ensure that there are layers of oversight to ensure that ideally in a perfect world, we're really doing the best for society as a whole. I like it. I like it. Uh, I will, I will add. Yes, please do. <laughs> um, please. Y- yes, that the complexity exists for a reason. Sometimes there's too much complexity. <laughs> I agree. Sometimes it's too complex. I agree with that. But the complexity exists for a reason. And the one thing that I think is important to remember is that government has always and will continue for all of time attempt to balance the needs of the public with individual liberties. And that balance is tricky. And what actually looks like something that is balanced is going to vary based on your viewpoint. Somebody with a background in public health is probably going to want things more balanced in the direction of public health. Somebody who uh, has a, has a different, say, uh, perhaps religious background or a different philosophical bent might want things balanced more on the side of individual liberties. But this balancing act between uh, the public and the individual has always been a topic that government has been involved in and will always be a topic that government is involved in. And it is always trying to achieve some type of balance. And it's usually a little bit imperfect because we're people and there is no way to create a perfect balance for everybody. But this balancing act is can be frustrating to watch, but is one of the important components of government is trying to balance the needs of the community against the needs of the individual. I said it before, I'll say it again. I, I wish I had you as, as a teacher, Sharon. You're Thank amazing. You. Um, and, and just, I guess, my, my final thought before before we wrap up is, you know, on unbiased science, obviously we're trying to be unbiased and apolitical. Um, but as we've said, it's really impossible to do that because politics is or is you know everywhere um, and everything is politicized and um, so that that's difficult to do. But again, just to restate what our perspective is and and why we are unbiased science is that we try to make recommendations that are based on the the, the best available evidence, the body of evidence, scientific consensus. That's where we are coming from. But we know that it gets 
complicated once you <laughs> when, once you enter the, the policy world. Sharon, really, thank you so very much. We were giddy when you replied to our, our sliding into your DMs and we're so grateful um, and we hope to have more conversations with you. Thank you so much. It's my pleasure. Thank you so much for inviting me. And um, I think, you know, the way you summarize that, this 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 attempt at balance, I think it's it's really um, you're never going to make anyone happy or everyone happy at any point in time. Nope, and that's not really what it's all about. So, you know, take take with that what you will. But thank you again, Sharon, for joining us. If I'm sure almost everyone is already following you. But if you're not following Sharon, um, find her at Sharon Says So. She's amazing. She's constantly answering all of the hot button questions about politics and government that you all want to know. Um, And if you want to support our efforts and help us grow the impact and reach of unbiased science, we welcome your contributions. We have a donation page on our website, a Venmo account, and recently a coffee site. Every dollar helps. We also have merch on our website. We're actually launching some new fun, snarky science-themed shirts with the launch of season four. We've got some educational posters, and we also have a newsletter subscription via Substack, which is the unbiased iPod.substack.com. Of course, we're recording video now, so subscribe to our YouTube. It's www.youtube.com at unbiasedscipod. We, of course, have our other social channels, Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, threads, LinkedIn, who knows? It's all at unbiasedscipod. So thanks for tuning in. We hope you learned a thing or two. Catch you next time on the pod, your trusted source for no nonsense, just science. Woo!